You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. The Food and Drug Administration last week issued warnings for over two dozen brands of over-the-counter eye drops after finding unsanitary manufacturing conditions leading to risks of infection and vision loss. A similar problem happened earlier this year when several other eye drop brands were recalled after contamination concerns and at least five cases of permanent vision loss and one death. There have been over 14,000 drug recalls in the last 10 years. That number includes prescriptions as well as these over-the-counter medications. Drug recalls happen not just because of contamination, but for a variety of other potential causes. Our next guest says that's just one concern when it comes to over-the-counter medication. She says we also need to think about drug interactions when we get medicine off the shelf. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Did you have to throw out a bottle of eye drops after this recall? Have you been affected by drug recalls in the past? Do you have questions about safety when it comes to over-the-counter drugs, both in terms of uh, you know the quality assurance process, but also... What we, what we take them with, the impacts they can have on us. You could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Michelle Chewy is professor and chair of social and administrative sciences, director of the Sondereger Research Center for Improved Medication Outcomes, and head of the Chewy Systems Approach to Medication Safety Lab at the UW-Madison School of Pharmacy. Michelle, thanks a lot for joining us today. I'm really happy to be here today. Let's start with these drug recalls, Uh, whether it's prescription or over-the-counter medication. When we see a recall, should we feel like, oh, no, the system failed or, oh, no, or, oh, great, the system worked and caught a problem or maybe a little bit of both? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. You know, recalls are kind of a scary thing. You know, we expect our drugs to be safe and we expect that when we get them at the prescription um, or an OTC product at the pharmacy, um, that they'll be safe for us to use and that we can take them. Um, as directed by our doctor or by our pharmacist. So I can see how a recall could be kind of a scary thing. But the recall process is actually a great regulatory process that the FDA has in place. The purpose of the recall is to identify very quickly when there might be a problem with a medication, whether it's contamination or some other issue, as you had previously stated. Um, And it's an opportunity to broadcast out to healthcare professionals and patients and caregivers that there might be something wrong and to um, seek out more information so that you can determine whether or not that product is safe for you or not. So it's a great opportunity to um, uh, identify the potential for harm before harm takes place. So with these uh, eyedrop recalls, for example, can you talk through the process? What triggers the FDA to look more closely at these products and then to go to the step of issuing this recall? Yeah, so the FDA has very stringent guidelines for manufacturer of medications. Uh, they have a, a quite, a, quite a list of uh, policies and procedures associated with maintenance of the facilities. Um, they spot check the medications in the batches that, they're, uh, that, that they are manufacturing. And if there ends up looking like there could be a problem, then they will call out to the other manufacturers to ensure that there's no other problem um, in place. And in this case, most recently, there was bacteria contamination in the eye drop. That's a scary thing because you're putting this, you know, the liquid into your eye and you don't want your eye to be infected. And so an opportunity existed where they called out to other, the other manufacturers of eye products and those products were also tested. And as a result, it was identified that we needed to recall these products. And that's how the consumers found out about it and were able to take them off the shelf, 
talk to their physicians and their pharmacists to identify whether or not those products should be trashed and then purchasing new products again. So it's a good way to get more information and to ensure that the products that you are taking continue to be safe. Now, there's a global supply chain for many products. Over-the-counter medications is part of that. A lot of our uh, drugs come from, say, Mexico, India, China. Does that make it complicated to track uh, manufacturing, given that it's not just within our borders here? Yeah, so that's a great question. So when products are sold in the United States, regardless of where they are manufactured, they have to follow the U.S. manufacturer guidelines. So any product that is sold in the United States, if it's a prescription product or an OTC product that is sold in the United States, must adhere to the manufacturer guidelines that the FDA prescribes. So there should be no difference in the manufacturing and the safe practices, whether the product is manufactured in China, Europe, or in the United States. Now, if a consumer hears something about a recall, they might wonder, well, wait, how do I make sure that I don't have the recalled product in my medicine cabinet? I'm looking at the FDA's drug recall page. Uh, is that the best way for people to find out or, or how do consumers know if their product is covered by a recall? Yeah, great question. So the easiest way to identify whether or not a product is recalled is to call your pharmacist. Your pharmacist should be your one-stop shop to give you the type of information that you need for both prescriptions or OTCs. All of the products have a lot number on them, and that is the number that you would identify to determine whether or not your specific product is recalled. But that's, you know, the, the, there's numbers and letters. It's kind of complicated to sort through when you go to the FDA website. So the easiest place to go to would be to just check in with your pharmacist. Uh, you can send them a picture or take your product into the pharmacy, and they would be very happy to help you determine whether or not that product is recalled and then help you identify a new product if you need to purchase a different product. We are talking about over-the-counter medications and safety, both when it comes to recalls, uh, as the FDA recalled some eye drops, and we're also now going to get into drug interactions we should watch for. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions, your experiences maybe with a recall or with taking an OTC, over-the-counter product that turned out to have bad effects because of something else you were taking. Michelle Chui stays with us from the UW-Madison School of Pharmacy. Michelle, I know you do a lot of work on over-the-counter medications and how they interact with other drugs, especially for seniors. I think a lot of us in the United States uh, take over-the-counter medications, not quite like they were candy, but pretty darn close. What kind of things should we watch for to make sure that that medication we're buying off the shelf uh, doesn't have consequences, doesn't uh, interact with other stuff we take? Yeah, so great question, um, Rob. I just wanted to say again that, you know, over-the-counter medications are indeed medications. Um, too much is not good. Um, and particularly for older adults who take a lot of prescription medication, uh, there are over-the-counter medications that can interact with them. Even the use of over-the-counter medications, if you take them too often, for too long, or too many at a time, can also um, pose a risk. Some of the over-the-counter medications that you can take can make you at risk of drowsiness, um, confusion, falling, and we don't want any of our older adults to be at risk of falling because we all want them to be able to live in their homes, happy in their homes, and we want to prevent um, emergency department visits, hospitalizations, and nursing home admissions. Um, so older adults represent 13% of the U.S. population, but they account for 62% of adverse drug events 
associated with um, emergency department visits. So this is an important topic. Uh, we want to make sure that older adults in particular are safe with the over-the-counter medications that they take. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Nancy is with us in Milwaukee. Nancy, hi. Hello. I am um, calling about the usage of a drug called diphenhydramine. I've, for many years, I've been taking that to go to sleep at night, although I believe that it is most uh, usually sold for people who have allergies. And what I'm thinking is that because it's sold, it's sold to dry up your sinuses for allergy sufferers, I am wondering if there's a possibility that this is also drawing up, I should say drying up hair follicles, causing hair loss, drying up. Uh, cilia in your cochlea causing deafness and also call, uh, drying up vocal cords, which is the reason I think that I sound the way I do. So wh- how detrimental to your health is the um, taking of diphenhydramine? The dosage on the bottle says take two, and I usually take a half of one. Mm. Nancy, thanks for the call. I want to get into a bigger issue on diphenhydramine with you in a minute, Michelle. Uh, but first of all, Nancy's specific uh, question about uh, dryness resulting from diphenhydramine, brand name Benadryl, often found in your PM sleep type products as well. Yeah, great question, Nancy. Um, you are so right. Diphenhydramine, brand name uh, Benadryl, is typically used for allergy meds to dry you up when you have a runny nose. It's also in a lot of cough and cold products. Actually, diphenhydramine is in a lot of over-the-counter products, both pain products, cough cold products, and sleep products. So it does do a good job of drying out your runny nose. It also um, is um, prone to drowsiness. I will say that there is no evidence for drying of those other issues that you had. Um, and I think that Rob is going to talk about diphenhydramine some more. So I'll just stop there. Nancy, thanks for the call. Yeah, and Michelle, this is a, a bit of a coincidence. My folks uh, just did an online lecture from University of Michigan. Their sleep people raised very serious concerns for seniors using diphenhydramine as a sleep aid, as you were mentioning earlier, uh, in part because of risks of falls and uh, drowsiness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So diphenhydramine is a product that has something called an anticholinergic effect. And that's a big word, but what that means is that um, drugs that have an anticholinergic effect can uh, be at risk of causing you to be drowsy, Um, it could cause you to be confused in older adults, and it could mask other um, symptoms that could uh, could look like dementia but really are not dementia. So for older adults, it's very, very um, clear and um, there's a lot of evidence that diphenhydramine should not be used in older adults. Many adults use them when they're younger and they continue using them as they get older, but pretty much after you turn 65 or so, when your body starts to change, you're taking a lot more prescription medications that also could have anticholinergic effects. It's a clear recommendation that older adults should no longer be taking diphenhydramine. Nancy, thanks again for that call. I don't know your age. I'm not a doctor, but maybe look into other sleep options, it sounds like. Michelle Chui is a professor and chair of social and administrative sciences, head of the Chui Systems Approach to Medication Safety Lab at the UW-Madison School of Pharmacy. We're talking about over-the-counter medication safety, both with uh, some recalls in the news, in this case of eye drops, and wider issues of possible drug interactions for everybody, especially for seniors, when we take these OTC medications. 
you can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions about a drug recalls? Have you had to search that medication shelf to see if one of your medications was covered? Do you have questions or thoughts or maybe experiences with drug interactions for those products you buy off the pharmacy shelf? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. We continue our talk with Michelle Chewy, professor and chair of social and administrative sciences at the UW-Madison School of Pharmacy. We're talking about over-the-counter drug safety, both when recalls happen, as is going on right now with some brands of eye drops and drug interactions, especially for seniors. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Have you ever talked to a doctor about whether you can take an over-the-counter medication and possible interactions with a prescription medication? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Michelle, let's put ourselves in the, the position of maybe a senior, an older person who's taking one, two, three prescription medications, wondering if they can take this pain reliever, that sleep aid, uh, that allergy medication, whatever, that they can buy off the shelf. What do you recommend they do? Uh, what kind of conversations should they have with healthcare providers to see how that's going to fit in with those other medications? Great. So the, the first thing I would recommend is that older adults in particular carry a list of their prescription and OTC medications with them. Uh, You could laminate a little card for your wallet or put a little piece of paper in your purse so that anytime there's a question from a provider or a pharmacist, you can just whip that piece of paper out and go through the list of medications with them. It's really hard to remember all of the medications that you're on. Sometimes the names are very complicated, difficult to pronounce. So it's always great to have a current list of your medications with you. The second thing I would do is anytime you're not sure about taking an over-the-counter medication for pain, or maybe, you know, it's cough and cold season right now, so you need to get something for a stuffy nose or a runny nose or a cough, the best idea would be for you to go and talk to a pharmacist in a community pharmacy. The community pharmacist is the drug expert, and they are available all of their open hours to help you. Now, right now, I know pharmacists are tend to be really busy, but mm-hmm. you should ask Um, questions, and you should demand to get some help um, related to your medications. Because, you know, taking a new medication, even an OTC medication, is serious business. We don't want you to be harmed. We don't want you to have a side effect. And the best way to identify that is to talk to a pharmacist about it and ensure that the medication that they select for you doesn't interact with any of the drugs that you're already taking or any of the disease states that you might have. And we've been talking about prescription medications and over-the-counter medications. Let's throw in another category, supplements, which covers a lot of ground. Uh, People might not even think of them as potentially interacting with uh, with medications. Is that a concern, though? Absolutely. Supplements are definitely a concern. Uh, There's there's a possibility of overdosing on things like vitamins as well. Um, uh, Just because something is good for you doesn't mean that two times, three times, five times of those things is even better for you. So everything in moderation, um, follow the directions, or again, most importantly, talk to your healthcare professional, and of course, the pharmacist is the most accessible person for you. Talking to Michelle Chui, Professor and Chair of Social and Administrative Sciences, Head of the Chui Systems Approach to Medication Safety Lab at the UW-Madison School of Pharmacy. You can join in with your questions about over-the-counter medications and safety. 
when it comes to recalls, if you've experienced something like that, or if you've done that, made that checklist of medications and had a talk with a doctor or pharmacist about possible interactions, or if you are that doctor or pharmacist, love to hear your perspective as well at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's bring on Laura now in Ashland. Laura, hi. Hi. What did you want to bring up? Um, I just turned 62, and you were talking about Benadryl and how that's not necessarily good for older people, and I know you said 65, to take as a sleep aid. And I was just wondering, I've tried things like melatonin and tryptophan, and nothing seems to help. So what does she recommend? Laura, thanks for the call. Now, Michelle, I don't know if you want to recommend particular uh, sleep aids uh, to to our caller, but what kind of things should we think about as we explore the sleep aid market uh, to find something that, that is right for us? Yeah, Laura, that is a really great question. I mean, there's a lot of older adults that suffer from sleep problems and insomnia. So your problem is not unique to you. Many, many older adults have a similar problem. So the first thing I would do, Laura, is to talk to both your, uh, either your physician or your pharmacist to make sure that none of the prescription products that you're taking could be the culprit here. It could be that you're taking a medication that is keeping you up, um, uh, perhaps um, uh, making you want to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And so that's, you know, waking you up and not letting you go back to sleep. There's a lot of prescription medications as well that could uh, could be, you know, contributing to this problem. So let's make sure that there's nothing else that's causing this problem before you medicate for something that could be um, could be a different thing that that we could we could address on the prescription or medical side. The second thing that I would tell you is that there are a lot of non-drug options that you could also try, and I'll just list a few off for you. Um, the first thing, of course, is um, so good sleep hygiene includes things like not exercising late at night not drinking alcohol late at night, um, not watching TV in bed, um, not smoking late in the evening, uh, making sure that you're not eating uh, late at night or and or drinking caffeinated beverages. So I'll start there. Um, I would I agree with you that sometimes melatonin is not enough. There are some prescription sleep aids um, that you can um, be prescribed as well. And that would be worth a conversation with your doctor about that. Thanks a lot for that call, Laura, at 800-642-1234. Now, we've been focusing on the -the over-the-counter drugs. Uh, Michelle, are there prescription medications where uh, people should be particularly careful when they head over to the -the over-the-counter aisle? Like, If you're taking uh, certain categories of prescriptions, we need to really watch out for possible interactions with the -the over-the-counter stuff that we might not think about. Yeah, you know, honestly, there are so many different classes of medications that you know, I don't want to necessarily say these are all of them and none of the others, mm-hmm. but definitely um, older adults in particular who have typical older adult disease, chronic diseases like hypertension or blood pressure, um, glaucoma, uh, some uh, men with prostate issues um, are a primary issue. Um, as I said with Laura, insomnia tends to be a big problem as well. So those are kind of the areas that are that should sort of be a red flag for you that you should engage in a conversation with your doctor or your pharmacist to just ensure that either your disease state or your prescriptions that you're um, taking to address those disease states are not in interaction with the OTCs that might also be solving other problems for you. One thing that I'm really curious about, Michelle, is, you know, it's not that hard to go online and look for a drug interaction between 
two things over the counter or prescription. How much more complicated does it get as we get up to three or four or more uh, medications that someone might be taking at the same time? Uh, very, very complicated. You know, some of the older adults that we've worked with um, in our studies are taking eight, 10, 12 prescription medications. And so there's a lot of different ways in which that uh, a medication could cause harm to you. We've looked at um, um, over-the-counter medication misuse in a lot of different ways. So the first way that we've looked at that is when older adults um, are not taking medications that are consistent with the label. Maybe the label might say, um, take one pill every six hours. And uh, we've, we've had older adults tell us, well, you know, it doesn't really need to be six hours. I could take it every four hours. I could take two every four hours. I could take three every four hours uh, because they don't recognize the potential for harm. We talked a little bit about drug-drug interactions. We also, um, we, there are some products that are also contraindicated um, in specific disease states. And then lastly, there are some medications like diphenhydramine that are actually contraindicated in older adults. And there are a couple of others as well. So again, lots and lots of complexity there, which is why um, even though there's an expectation that you know, consumers can purchase and select OTCs on their own, and particularly for an older adult, it's always good habit to just check with the pharmacist to, con- to confirm. Michelle, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Michelle Chewy is professor and chair of social and administrative sciences and head of the Chewy Systems Approach to Medication Safety Lab at the UW-Madison School of Pharmacy. She talked to us about over-the-counter drug safety in terms of both quality and recalls and possible interactions between over-the-counter medications and other conditions and medications. Tomorrow on Central Time, election 2024 is just a year away. Election results from states this week, plus some early polls, are setting the stage for the presidential race. We'll look at the latest news in the campaign. And on Food Friday, it's time for some good soup. We'll get advice and recipes for great soups for the winter months, and you can share your favorites. That's tomorrow here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, we talk with a journalist who's been covering the auto industry for decades about the UAW agreements after a couple months long strike and the future of cars in the United States. I'm Rob Ferrett. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Central Time, I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Members of the United Auto Workers are voting on new contracts with Detroit's big three auto manufacturers. The agreements would cap off a weeks-long campaign of targeted strikes. Now the UAW and the three unionized car companies have tentative agreements on things like wage increases, a boost in retirement benefits, and where and how some products are made. UAW President Sean Fain addressed union members yesterday during a Facebook Live video presentation highlighting the gains and the aggressive walkout strategy. This strategy was only possible because of you, the membership. You had faith and you were unified. Not every union can go to the bargaining table and say our members are ready to walk out with zero notice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's how powerful our solidarity is in the UAW. We started from a 9% wage offer and ended at 25%. We didn't take the first offer. We didn't take the second offer. Across the three companies, we had over 30 contracts offered. 
We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Were you, your family, or friends affected in some way by the UAW strikes and now by this tentative agreement? What kind of impact does this have on you? If you've been following this story, maybe as an auto consumer, do you have thoughts or questions about how this all shook out? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Micheline Maynard is a journalist and broadcaster based in Michigan. She's the author of the 2003 book, The End of Detroit, How the Big Three Lost Their Grip on the American Car Market. 20 years later, she recently launched a Substack newsletter as a kind of digital sequel to the book. It's called Intersection, Everything That Moves. Mickey, welcome back to Central Time. I'm so happy to be back with you. Thanks. Let's start with uh, what's going on right now. What are we seeing as uh, various locals uh, vote to ratify or not uh, these agreements? Well, a number of locals have ratified them. And let's remember that Ford, Chrysler, although they're called Stellantis Mm -hmm. now, and General Motors are all voting sort of uh, consecutively because the deals were reached first at Ford, second at Stellantis, and then at General Motors. So you're seeing big locals across the country vote on the contract, and the results will probably be in in a week or so. Can you compare the expectations that uh, UAW President Sean Fain had set at the outset uh, when these walkouts started with uh, what we're seeing in the actual tentative agreements? So a little background on Sean Fain. He was elected in March as UAW president, the first time a UAW president has been directly elected. The president used to be elected in by leadership of the union, and this is a real groundbreaking person for the union. No one has ever been directly elected before, and immediately during his campaign and then as president, he started talking about getting back what the union has lost in concessions over the last 15 or 20 years. He was talking about a 40% wage increase over five years. He was talking about restoration of cost of living allowances, which are called COLA. He was talking about gains for retirees who had really not gotten much um, of anything out of UAW contracts over the last decades, I would say. And he was also talking about something called tiers. Um, In 2007, the UAW agreed to concessions with the car companies that allowed new workers to be hired in at sharply lower wages and less generous benefits. In 2007, let's remember, car companies were closing plants. And indeed, I think Janesville closed in 2009. So Hiring was not really an issue back in the zero zeros. It was keeping your plant open. Well, fast forward and a number of plants have hired people and you now have kind of a division in the union of about 60% of workers who were hired before 2007 and 40% who've hired since 2007. So you might be working you might have two people working alongside each other, one making $32 an hour and one making 16 or $17 an hour. One other wider ongoing issue here is uh, the, the car market is changing uh, slowly, but maybe picking up steam to more electric vehicle production. That's been a concern, how those are made, how and who makes the batteries and whether those are made by UAW employees. How did that factor into all this? 
So Sean Fain talked a lot during these negotiations about a just transition because everybody in the auto industry knows that electric vehicles are about to become more important. And this isn't just an American issue. This is a global issue. Electric vehicles are huge in China and European countries are mandating the end to internal combustion engines over the next 15 or so years. So the American companies are really pushing to develop electric vehicles and in particular electric vehicle batteries. And each of the car companies has a joint venture with a South Korean company or a Japanese company to build electric vehicle batteries. Now they're planning to build significantly big plants in the United States to produce those batteries. But what the UAW wanted was a guarantee that those employees would be represented by the union. Talking to Micheline Maynard, journalist and broadcaster based in Michigan, looking at the UAW uh, auto strike, uh, the tentative deals reached now with the big three automakers. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts, your questions, maybe personal experiences if you were involved in this, 800-642-1234. So, Micheline, what was the resolution that came out of these agreements when it came to electric vehicles? I think uh, one of your recent pieces on Substack said... (laughs) They got some of it. There's still some open questions. Yeah. So here's a little bit of a complexity. If it's a car, if it's a plant that's owned by one of the big three automakers, they can require that those workers be UAW members. But in these joint venture plants, you can't require that another employer, especially an employer outside the United States, hire UAW members. So the compromise was that the plants that will be owned by the big three, the Detroit companies, will have UAW representation and the plants that are in the joint ventures are going to have to be negotiated at some point in the future. What's very interesting is that uh, Stellantis is going to reopen a factory in Belvedere, Mm -hmm. Illinois, not too far from Wisconsin. And people who lost their jobs there when the plant shut down this last spring will have the right of return. They can come back to those the plant from wherever they've gone. And there'll be a similar situation in Lordstown, Ohio, near Youngstown, where there is an electric battery uh, venture that's being built. And the people who are laid off from Lordstown will have the right of return if they want to, to go to this electric vehicle venture. And they will be able to be UAW members and get their full pay and benefits. A certain amount of time ago, some decades ago, if we were talking about the big three in the UAW, well, we'd be talking about most of the U.S. automotive industry. Well, now we've got lots and lots of non-unionized plants in uh, less union-friendly states around the country. It seems like in these negotiations, uh, people on both sides were kind of looking over their shoulders at, uh, at these competitive plants around the country. How big a factor is that when we see these union negotiations? It was a big factor in these negotiations because roughly half of the U.S. market is now owned by these international brands, the transplants like Toyota and Honda and Hyundai and BMW and um, Mercedes-Benz. And so the UAW has never been able to organize any of those factories. They've organized, they represented workers in joint venture plants, but they don't represent workers in any of these new factories. And Sean Fain has said repeatedly that we weren't just negotiating for ourselves. We were negotiating to make these, to make, um, 
our efforts at organizing these plants easier. Because if you could see what the UAW members are getting, you know, you might say, oh, I'd be willing to sign a card for UAW representation. Well, literally the ink was not dry before Toyota announced that it was giving raises to employees at its plant in Georgetown, Kentucky. And so the UAW seized on that and said, see, you know, they're, they're afraid of us coming to negotiate, but you know, we consider people at these car makers to be our future union brothers and sisters. And they have said that they've gotten, I'm not sure if this is true, but that they've gotten thousands of inquiries so far from employees at the transplants who would like to join the union. We're talking to journalist Micheline Maynard about the results of the UAW strikes, what's next in the auto industry. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions for our guest? Uh, If you are a car owner or a car shopper, are you looking at electric vehicles as an option? That's a factor in these negotiations, as we just heard. Were you or your family, your community affected by plant closures over the years, including in Janesville? Are you uh, just across the border in Illinois watching what's going to happen at that Belvedere plant that we were just talking about? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Barrett. Journalist Micheline Maynard is with us. Her new Substack newsletter is called Intersection, Everything That Moves. She's been covering the auto industry for a good long time now. We're talking about what the UAW strikes accomplished, where the auto industry goes next. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. Have you worked in the auto industry? Do you work in it now? Do you receive a pension? Have you been watching these negotiations maybe with that in mind? A lot of union action this year, a lot of resolutions, at least partly in favor of the unions. Are you glad to see that or does that worry you? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Micheline, uh, we've uh, seen that Actors Guild, now the Screen Actors Guild, resolve their strike. We've seen a lot of labor action this year. People have talked about the hot labor summer. Do you see the UAW uh, tentative agreements here as part of a wider uh, union trend in the United States? The UAW got enormous support from other unions, from townspeople, from local um, local businesses like bakeries and even franchise restaurants during the strike. And I really think it touched a chord. It, you know, it was a great story because here you have this brand new president of the union who's basically said, you know what, no more labor management cooperations. And he said yesterday, I think we are not the the HR department for the companies. You know, we are a union. They made it very clear that this whole uh, 40 years of labor management cooperation is over um, in the auto industry. You know, no more golf tournaments, no more black tie events, that kind of thing. And I think they really touched a chord with a lot of people. The economy has been awful for many people, um, and especially for the younger members of the union. You know, they're only getting paid about fourteen to seventeen dollars an hour, depending on where they're working in the companies. And you know, over the last couple of years, the fast food uh, restaurant workers were able to demand more money from fast food places like McDonald's and Burger King and others. And I think the UAW members said, you know, we need to get our fair share. And Sean Fain really played off of that. And I think he got lots of sympathy for it. 
The automakers argued uh, through this process that, hey, if we give the unions uh, everything they want or most of what they want, uh, car prices are going to go up for consumers. We're going to be at a competitive disadvantage with those other auto plants around the country that are not unionized. Uh, Sean Fain argued that, no, uh, we're just going to cut into some of your big profits here. What do you make of that part of the dispute? Well, two of the companies during the negotiations said that what the union was asking for would bankrupt them, which is silly, because they actually did go bankrupt in two of them in 2009, General Motors and Chrysler, at the time was Chrysler. And they were in horrible shape compared with where they are now. The other thing to think about is now 80%, 80% of vehicle sales are pickups and SUVs. And the average price of a vehicle, new vehicle, is now around $48,000. Um, and when I bought my first little Toyota <laughs> back in the 80s, I paid $5,200. You know, So it's unfathomable to a lot of us on how expensive vehicles have gotten. Those or probably prices that our parents and grandparents paid for a house way back when. So I think the the public will probably see the car makers raise prices, but you know, when cars don't sell, rebates and incentives come right back. So this will be very interesting to see whether they can sustain higher prices or whether they're going to have to bring them down. It's Brianna Caller at 800-642-1234. Tim is with us in New Berlin. Tim, hi. Hi. Uh, yes, uh, your guest mentioned that in the joint ventures for the battery plants, that union recognition might be discussed down the road. And I was wondering if you meant a card check agreement. Was a card check agreement negotiated in the UAW contract? So the way it's set up is at a couple of the plants, the workers have a right to flow in. In other words, they if if they're part of the company and they want to go work in an electric battery plant, they go in and they remain UAW workers. And then if that fills up over 50% of the plant, um, then the plant becomes a UAW-represented plant. And if it doesn't, then they would have a card check. And Sean Fain said specifically at two of the plants that there would be card checks. And that, so to explain what that is yeah. to listeners, um, you sign a card designating that the UAW is your bargaining representative. And then the National Labor Relations Board will oversee an election and they will they will check the cards. Tim, thanks a lot for the call at 800-642-1234. Micheline, we've seen a lot of states adopt uh, what they call right-to-work laws, uh, making it easier for workers to opt out of paying union dues at unionized plants. Uh, How big an issue is that in a negotiation like this? Did that uh, get in the way or are enough of these plants in not those kind of states where it didn't matter so much? Well, some of them are in in right-to-work states. And so what right-to-work work means is that you're not forced to join a union even if one is formed in your workplace and you can't be required to pay union dues. And so that is a tricky situation and that is part of the situation with these electric vehicle battery plants. There's going to be some in Tennessee and Kentucky which are right to work states and there is supposed to be one in Marshall, Michigan that Ford is building. General Motors is building uh, a plant near Spring Hill, Tennessee, which people might remember from Saturn, except it's now a General Motors plant. And then the battery plant that's being built for Stellantis is outside of um, 
uh, Belvedere. So I'm not, I think, don't think Illinois is right to work. So that one would be a safe situation pretty much for the union, but the ones in the South are not going to be, um, you know, free throws for them. They're going to have to probably do some work to organize at least one or two of them. I want to spend a little time on electric vehicles, EVs and their future, because this was such a big part of the story we're talking about. Uh, Now we've seen a boom it seemed like for a while the numbers escalating rapidly, but now I keep seeing articles like, oh, wait a minute, Americans are getting a little shy about buying EVs. What do you see uh, in progress toward transitioning over to electric vehicles? So we have seen quite a lot of growth in EV purchases compared with nothing. I mean, if you think about it, you know, EVs have been sort of curiosities over the last of the last 20 years or so. But when Tesla came along and introduced lower priced EVs, that's when the sales have taken off. And there are a couple of models from the Detroit companies that do pretty well. We haven't seen Toyota really push into the market yet. And I think that will make a big difference. But right now, I think there's some incentives on Tesla's to get people to buy them. And there's a lot of skepticism. I mean, I was looking at the map of where EV chargers are. And of course, I'm looking at the state of Michigan since I live here. Mm -hmm. But when you get north of Traverse City, there's almost no chargers up there. I mean, they're they're up in around Traverse City because you're vacationers. But if you have a camp up in the Upper Peninsula and you want to drive from the Detroit area to the UP, you know, you better charge up your vehicle and make sure that you can get to where you're going and get back from where you're going, at least in time to get to a charger. And I would imagine Wisconsin is very similar Mm -hmm. that in the North Country, there are not as many chargers as there would be around Milwaukee and Madison. One line I've been very curious about, uh, the electric equivalent of the Ford F-150, this incredibly popular pickup truck for home use, uh, for job sites and more. Are people embracing that as an EV? I think people are very intrigued by the lightning, and I I think it got off to a pretty strong start, and then there were some defects on the vehicle that gave people a little pause about it. But, you know, the cool thing about the lightning, to me at least, is that you can charge things from the lightning. So if you're on a job site and you need to charge up your power tools or whatever, you can plug it into the truck and the truck will charge it up. And so that is an advantage, I think, for a lot of people who use electric vehicles for commercial uses. Again, I think the issue is, will you have the charge to get to and from where you need to get. And that is, that's the big question about all these vehicles. We see uh, trend pieces about uh, younger people, Gen Z, millennials, at least anecdotally, maybe not as interested in driving or not as interested in owning cars. Uh, Maybe they just can't afford them. I don't know. Oh, is that something that uh, people on labor and industry side are watching and worrying about? Definitely. I've been watching this issue for about 15 years because we've had the rise of Zipcar, we've had the rise of Lyft and Uber. Many, many cities have rental bikes, rental scooters. A lot of people are living in walkable communities. I live in a walkable community. I like the idea of not having to drive everywhere all the time. And younger people, of course, they're laden with student loan debt. 
Um, they, houses are expensive. Living is expensive. And, you know, I think eventually, if you have family, you probably will have to get a vehicle at some point, at least one vehicle for the family. But people who are, you know, 45 and younger have all these choices that didn't exist even 10 or 15 years ago. And so they aren't in a super rush to buy to buy vehicles. Of course, I don't want to generalize because there are plenty of younger people buying vehicles, but they have choices that their mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles didn't have. A quick question from a listener. Don't have time to take a call, but a listener wondering about plug-in hybrids. Are we seeing those as a big option? Maybe a transition for people who aren't quite there for EVs just in our last half a minute or so. Yeah, Toyota is definitely putting some focus on plug-in hybrids, and Toyota's got a new battery under development that they think will give a much larger range. Um, So I would keep an eye on what they're doing with plug-ins. Mickey, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Micheline Maynard, journalist and broadcaster based in Michigan. She's the author of the 2003 book, The End of Detroit, How the Big Three Lost Their Grip on the American Car Market. Now she's got a Substack newsletter. You can find it. It's called Intersection, Everything That Moves. We'll get a link up at WPR.org slash Central Time. We talked to her about the state of the auto industry as UAW shops around the country are voting on agreements reached with the three major unionized automakers. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network.